It's Friday the 22nd of November and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, big tech cracks down on itself. We'll look at why Twitter and now Google are taking steps to manage misinformation. These companies have become kind of the opposite of what they were in the beginning. They were the garage startups. Now they are the giant monopolists that, to my mind, look very much like the 19th century railroad companies. Plus, our contributing editor Andrew Muller examines what we've learned from the week of news headlines. And our senior editor Robert Bound dissects a dystopian misstep by the UK's Conservative Party during this week's televised debate. I'm Ben Ryland in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. The decision by social media giant Twitter to ban most political advertising may have started a wider movement. Google now says it will impose restrictions too. Advertisers will no longer be able to target voters based on their known or assumed political affiliation. The company also intends to ban doctored videos and images. And it says it will police obviously false claims more rigorously. Whether this will have an edifying effect on the discourse remains to be seen, but it will increase pressure on Facebook to take similar steps. Rana Faruha is an associate editor at the Financial Times and the author of a new book called Don't Be Evil, which is highly critical of big tech. When a big tech platform comes in and just ring fences, huge swaths of data, it creates dark zones where innovators can't go. And so these companies have become kind of the opposite of what they were in the beginning. They were the garage startups. Now they are the giant monopolists that, to my mind, look very much like the 19th century railroad companies. For 76 years, L trains clattered by carrying people to work and home again. But the old steel skeleton outlived its usefulness. Passengers dwindled. And so the L is being torn down. You know, in the last hundred years or so, I would say, you know, you had the rise of the railroad monopolies. Then you had just a clear concentration of power that was degrading the overall economic ecosystem. And then you had a reformer like Louis Brandeis, for example, in the U.S. come in. And then you had it swing back towards public power. Same again in the 1920s. You know, you have a market crash. Then you have the New Deal. You had a lot of public power during the wartime periods and the 50s and 60s post-war, kind of more industrial planning in the U.S. And then by the 70s, all right, maybe it was time for the Reagan-Thatcher revolution. Maybe that was appropriate. I think we have reached a pendulum shift now where it is natural and appropriate for the public sector to start taking back some control because concentrations of wealth and inequality are the same that they were in the Gilded Age. The Valley is interesting because, you know, many people out there claim to be liberal or social liberals, let us say. You know, they would tend to vote Democrat. They're very woke. But... (laughs) Really, many of them, I would say, are truly libertarians. I mean, they are hyper-capitalists. And think about the people that run these firms. Many of the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Sheryl Sandbergs, you know, they grew up in an era really from the 1980s onwards where the government was really just for cutting taxes. You know, there was not a public discussion, particularly in the U.S., about what we could do together collectively as a society. It was very much the greed is good era. And so I think they haven't known anything different. And I think in some ways a company like Facebook is the apex of the sort of neoliberal economic ethos that we've all been practicing for the the last 40 years. That was Rana Faruha there. You can hear more from Rana coming up on this week's edition of the Monocle Weekly. Details are at our website.
Well, we are at the tail end of the week. Now with a look back at what we've learned from the week's news headlines, here's our contributing editor, Andrew Muller. Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party have actually... We learned this week that the United Kingdom's politicians are still taking to the idea of the leaders' election debate like goats to rollerblading. Prime Minister Boris Johnson and opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn faced off in a debate apparently structured to find yet further depths to the already abysmal... Discourse. We will end austerity. I'm absolutely clear about that. Yes, because it's been so brutal on the lives of so many people. The last election. And I believe in spending. And this still wasn't quite the most baffling television spectacle to which we were treated this week. Prince Andrew, now a mercifully distant eighth in line to the throne, gave a bizarre interview addressing his friendship with unlamented sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Do you regret the whole friendship with Epstein? Um, uh, now, uh, still not, and the reason being is that, that the, the people that I met um, and the opportunities that I was given to learn... We also learned that there is a world in which being stood down from the excruciating tedium of the public duties of a member of the British royal family is regarded as some sort of punishment. Having shot himself in the foot, Andrew hopped into penitent exile. We also learned, although did not necessarily retire to our fainting couches as a consequence, that US President Donald Trump's recollection of particular events may not always be the most reliable guide to what actually happened. The US ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, a Trump appointee, got his memory back as regards Trump's attempts to pull a standover move on Ukraine. I know that members of this committee frequently frame these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? The answer is yes. We learned, though Iran seems to have missed the memo, that launching missiles at Israel will always invite a brusque response. In Syria, dozens of targets associated with the Quds Force, foreign legion of Iran's Revolutionary Guard, were struck. We also learned, via leaked intelligence cables, of the extent to which Tehran's tentacles have reached into Baghdad. What we didn't learn much of, however, was the protests reported to have occurred across Iran during the week, apparently sparked by a rise in petrol prices. In the time-honoured manner of regimes which totally have it all under control and aren't up to anything sinister, Iranian authorities switched off the internet. We learned that whatever worries may disturb the sleep of Russia, a fear of being perceived as petty and or vindictive and or very arguably somewhat thin-skinned is not high among them. Russia returned the two gunboats and one tug it seized from the Ukrainian navy a year ago, but first removed many of the fixtures and fittings. Russia might not get its deposit back. And Russia's football team refused to wear their new shirts in a European Championship qualifier against Belgium. Umbrage was taken at the fact that the red, blue and white stripes on the shirt sleeves are in reverse order to which they appear on Russia's flag. Team manager Stanislav Cherchesov gamely suggested that the stripes would be the right way around when players and fans lofted their arms in triumph, but they didn't get that many chances, being filled in for one by the Belgians. 
And to go back to where we came in, we learned something of the melancholy heroism of those candidates who, come election time, trudge footpaths, belabor doorbells, and brandish leaflets in a cause they know to be hopeless. We heard from Luke Parker, who has twice run for the UK's Conservative Party in rock-solid London seats, a task next to which the capture of the Erymanthian boar, the slaughter of the nine-headed Lernaean hydra, the cleaning of King Orgeus's stables, or any of the other ordeals of Heracles look like an afternoon's mildly energetic gardening. Really, one of the things they really like to see is that you've actually fought a seat before and that you've almost kind of been vetted by going through that process. You've shown you can campaign, you've shown you can get out there and uh, get your message across. So so for a lot of people who have aspirations to get into Parliament one day, it's a good route to, to do that. And with that hopeful pinning of the rosette of news to the lapel of fact, or whichever way round that metaphor works, if indeed it even does, but it has been a long week. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, our senior editor Robert Bound examines a rather dystopian misstep by the UK's ruling Conservative Party during this week's televised debate. Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour we Party end the have I'm absolutely said clear about In the UK, the yes, televised leadership debates have started ahead of the general election on the 12th of December. This week, Prime Minister Boris Johnson faced Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the opposition, and while both men turned in fairly dull performances in front of the home and studio audience, the programme was notable for a subplot that displayed social media's pernicious teeth in all their rotten glory. During the programme on Twitter, Fact Check UK popped up as a handle criticising Corbyn and retweeting praise for Johnson. Hmm. Well, it sounds trustworthy, but what exactly is Fact Check UK? An independent arbiter of the facts and figures quoted during the heat of rhetorical battle? No. OK, then, maybe a right-leaning think tank spinning against Labour's big spending pledges. Try again. In fact, it was the official Twitter account for the press office of Johnson's Conservative Party which had changed its name to Fact Check UK for the duration of the televised debate. Wow. When questioned about this the next day on BBC TV, Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab said that no one gives a toss about the social media cut and thrust, reframing the journalist's question as if it concerned the minutiae of online debate rather than the simple truth. The facts are that this was extremely bad faith done extremely badly by the Conservative press office. The account is followed first and foremost by journalists running their own fact-checks on its own announcements and spin. How could this possibly have ended well? More sadly and essentially, however, this is a scornful piece of future shock gerrymandering that signals a political universe in which facts have become mere cannon fodder in a larger war of bullshit. We should all give a toss about this and other contemptuous breaches of public trust. Listeners, always read the label. For Monocle, I'm Robert Bound. That's all in today's programme. You can read and subscribe to our daily email bulletin at our website, monocle.com. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Monday. Enjoy your weekend. Music.